Hello to all of you Education Insider listeners. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is Jacob Hansen, your host. I am the CEO at PRP Group, formerly PR with Panache. And I have the great pleasure of being here with former clients, but very current and new friends, Taylor Smith, the Managing Director, and Morgan Battle, Managing Director at Tucker Capital. lived after college so i always said i'd come back to Vail with my family um did you live years. in Vail? yeah yeah i lived in Vail right after school yeah, yeah. You know, i i actually i went to college i lived in durango so like my purgatory and telluride were my stomping ground in college mm. our brother was a ski instructor in telluride oh lucky him you know i i managed to get my my college years to last six years I went, and with I, that go, sorry go ahead morgan <laughs> i went i went to i went to Vail after four months of applying for jobs on wall street with a history degree from a liberal arts school so and this was right after 9 11 and and there wasn't a lot of opportunities of employment for a cat like that so you know after- cut from the same cloth now i was in my first week of college when 9 11 happened so we're only a few day a few years apart here but yeah. I graduated, ended up with a degree in Spanish and a minor in history. And I tell you what, folks were banging my door down as well um, <laughs> from a liberal arts school too. So, I mean, you know, yeah, I hear you. Well, you've come a long way. I mean, it's <laughs> well, all you know, happening now. I, I got to say, you know, that there, there's something to be said about, you know, I chose to invest my late teens and my early twenties into a social experiment. And, you know, I think it worked out. I, you know, I got a degree out of the deal. Yeah. But Jacob, if you could just, if you could ask the rest of your questions in Spanish, we would, we would appreciate that. Maybe with historical context. I don't know. Like, do I even remember what the rules for subjunctive are? You know, I'm not really sure. I'm going to throw out a conjugation. I'm in hope it works. But before I distract us too much, I do want to, you know, Taylor, hear from you as well. I know that you play, you know, while same title, you play a very different role for for Tucker. Uh, You came to Tucker in a, you know, with a different path than Morgan. Yeah. Thanks. My journey at Tucker Capital came after starting out in in Wall Street and private equity. And what has been the most fun about getting to work with Morgan and the other partners at Tucker Capital has been learning how to take this language of financial analysis and mergers and acquisitions and strategy, but put it into a really relational context and realize that it's, it's people who are making these decisions about what to do, whether it's a deal or how to grow and a real focus on the kind of combination between having to know that stuff as a, as a foundational element of what's going on in the market, what's happening with the financial profile of client or where the growth opportunities are, but really having over that a lens of all right, what, what really motivates this team and, and what do these people want to do and building that trust? Cause that's, that's what Morgan and, and the guys at Tucker Capital have been, that's been the foundation for 40 years. And for skiing, I've got three little girls and I'm just following them down the, the slopes. The physics work differently on the moguls when you're nine years old. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm like getting slower and they're getting faster. And it's, uh, it's been, it's been pretty fun. You know what I've, cause I've got mine are five and seven. And so I'm, I'm a little bit behind you, but it's the same. I used to race going fast was like all I wanted to do. It's like, give me the steepest hill you could. And I'll just go straight down. And I had to start slowing down. You know what it was? It was. I'm done getting hurt. Like, screw this. They get hurt. They tumble a little bit. They pop back up like Gumby and off we go. I get hurt and I'm leaving on a stretcher. 
you guys were working with a wonderful company called Twig and they were acquired during the pandemic and it just so happened our paths crossed. But to me, that was one of the, maybe it was the last activity of the year for pandemic acquisitions, but can you guys maybe give a lay of the land of, you know, what's going on in that neighborhood? Are we post pandemic? I don't know. You guys, who wants to take this first hot potato? I'd love a quick crack. I think there's like a strategic reckoning that's coming due on all this. I think everyone felt the frenzy of the M&A activity, didn't want to miss out. There was a lot of FOMO. Money was cheap. Markets were flying. Everyone was kind of having a really nice time. And they used that as an opportunity to round out their offerings and kind of use the unsettledness of COVID to align themselves so that they're well positioned when the dust settled. I think the dust is starting to settle, although every day some new variant seems to creep up somewhere in the world. So who knows if we're ever going to get out of this thing. But I think cooler heads have prevailed and we're starting to go into some sense of normalcy. And I think what's happening now is people are looking around and taking stock of what they've just aligned with and spent a fair amount of money in, perhaps. And if you don't have the strategic muscle tissue already developed to know how one thing connects to the other, then you could just have a nice collection of assets that you need to figure out what to do with. And if it's not speaking to the entire organization where there is a real throughput, they may not realize the value that you were hoping for at the start. So I think it's the companies that have a really strategic mind that know actually what playbook they were following and were thoughtful about doing it and we're building the on-ramps from one business to the next as they were buying versus the ones that just needed to get it because someone else was getting it or going after it and now it's a competitor or they missed out on a few before. They may, when the music is now starting to stop, look around and say, wait, what do we do with this? Because as Taylor said at the start, these are people, you know? So I think there's going to be a strategic crossroads that people are going to come to pretty quickly. Taylor, what do you think? This is sort of one of those crystal ball moments, what's going to happen next. And I, I'll have to tell you, I don't have a great track record with them. I mean, if you asked me that question two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought that M&A was going to go quiet. We told clients that, hey, you know, this is probably a time to work on your own internal stuff. And the market went totally the other way. And I think what happened was what Morgan said. The pandemic was just the great reckoning. The whole market had to leap forward into full digital implementation in a way that everybody had been talking about for years, but it had always been out there on the horizon and making incremental progress. But once the whole market goes that direction and there was still money in the budgets and even more money because of the stimulus, then I think you had this sort of arms race among the different players. You you had the ones who were well positioned for it. Those were the, the bigger players who were out ahead and digital forward, and they have been the most acquisitive in terms of acquiring other parts of the portfolio so that they can extend their advantage. You you couple that with capital markets that, as Morgan said, capital was cheap and it was readily available and a real desire from investors to grow. And we're coming off of a really heated time. Jason Palmer had a great article a couple of weeks ago around how M&A has, has changed and the sort of shift towards looking for more profitable companies, which really resonates for us as well. I think there is going to be a reckoning, but I I don't think it's going to be 
something, the other shoe drops and we go into a big decline. I think there's been a, a real reshuffling of the deck and people are going to be making smart strategic decisions from here on out. I read an article just earlier today while I was eating lunch. The U.S. has got a pretty big recession coming now. Deutsche Bank is saying we're going to have to use that to pump the brakes on inflation. But wait, it will only last till 2024. But then a few weeks ago, I read an article about these massively failed ed tech unicorns over the years. We're running highs right now where maybe people aren't paying as close attention to stuff when it slows down, maybe they'll catch the details. But do you think that people are doing stuff for the right reasons? Are there smarter M&A decisions that can be made to make sure that you're foolproofing yourself or safeguarding yourself from the future? What are the acquisitions that are, that are going to truly change and contribute to a company's strategic core? There are companies out there that are making acquisitions because it's almost financial engineering. They want to add more revenue to their top line, get to that next level of growth so they can tell that story to the next acquirer. That works for a period of time where uh, everybody's in this frenzy, but we're all saying that it, we're going into a new phase where there's going to be much more scrutiny put on whether these were good decisions or not. The way to get out ahead of that is to really focus on the strategic core. At the end of the day, they're acquiring businesses with cultural alignment, there's people involved. We're not going to realize synergies. We're going to keep employees, you know, maintain some autonomy. That's always at the start of an acquisition process. Doesn't often play out that way. Things start to adjust post-acquisition and that's just part of the game. In terms of your question on how can you safeguard as best possible the M&A process so that for, for both buyer and seller, there's a fruitful outcome. It gets back to some stylistic approach in a process, which is you kind of lean into the hardest issues right out of the gate. If you're not really kind of putting shoulder to the wheel on stuff that is ultimately going to rear its head down the line, it may not feel relevant or topical now, but it's something that someone said in that first meeting that, if you don't address it, that may be the reason why they leave two years from now. And when that person leaves, there's an adjustment in, in, in the value proposition that you just acquired. So I think being really vigilant about is the cultural fit legitimate? Not that we say it, we all have a nice dinner, but you have to have a bad dinner first. Mm -hmm. You got to know what it's like when things get a little rough and raw. Yeah. And can you rebuild commonality and respect because relationships are not nice dinners and nice conversations and nice meetings all the time. At some point, rubber is going to meet the road and you're going to get into a hairy spot and you need to know how this person behaves. You got to see the whites of their eyes when things get dicey or you ask them a hard, hard question. You can do that early on. You can do that in the first 20 minutes if you want. But I think those are the kinds of things that if there is a reshuffling of the deck, and, and, and we certainly think there has um, been one afoot for quite some time, but if it's thoughtful acquisitions now or the name of the game, when you really are going to be thoughtful about the cultural fit, do your homework on that. Push yourself out of your comfort zone to make sure that you know who it is you're aligning with and vice versa. Early on when you were talking, Morgan, I saw Taylor, he was either frantically writing something down or like texting the wife, one of the two. It was like he was the lawyer on the other side of the, the courtroom writing down his arguments. So I wanted to see Taylor, anything, anything you wanted to add to No, I'm to just, it? I mean, I'm constantly writing stuff down that Morgan says it's pearls, <laughs> of, 
pearls of wisdom. I just read that quote 20 minutes ago before. Yeah, I right. <laughs> you know, you make a good point about the messy dinner. Now, you know, for listeners' sake, you know, are you guys usually advising on the acquirer, acquiree? Are you on David or Goliath? What role do you usually play? Usually David. We're usually team David. Yeah. We're awesome. <laughs> With the federal government committing to increased spending, how do you see maybe the increased government spending playing into any of the financial equity side of education? I, I think M&A has everything to do with growth and how optimistic and aggressive people are thinking. And so the stimulus comes in to play because it, it adds additional market size. It pumps up how much revenue is out there for the companies to to go after. If that goes away, then that's been a big driver. That's sort of a fundamental driver. That's kind of a tide that that lifts all boats. But it's not the only driver. I think, you know, a big part of what's been driving this has been the the fact that the capital markets have been strong. I mean, as far away as the stock market can feel from the education world, it is a big driver of it because if valuations are going up and there's sort of this growth mindset from an investor standpoint, then the companies are going to get pressure from their investors and, and put pressure on themselves. How do we grow faster than we can grow organically on our own? And that's where M&A really comes into the picture. That's going to continue as long as, as long as the markets are strong and people, you know, have this sort of optimistic mindset. It's already has slowed down. It's going to slow down to some extent as we get into this kind of fiscal cliff of some of the, the stimulus money and budget that was going into the, at least the K-12 side of things. But until the, until the capital markets really slow down, we'll continue to see, see M&A. And Morgan, you made a good point that there's already been so much M&A activity among the big players that maybe they're full and they need some time to sort that out. So that may affect it as well. But in general, it's going to be less driven by the stimulus and more by the overall capital markets. I couldn't say it any better than that. <clears throat> what are some of the bigger mistakes you see companies making? Based on precedent transactions, the way that the markets are moving, feeling like this is their moment without really understanding if it actually is and doing the work to, to kind of sort that out. I, I also think all deals are stories, all businesses have one. And, and so really kind of being intentional about what it is, the story that you've been building over the last five years, 20 years, whatever, 30 years, how are you going to the market and what are you telling? What are you trying to find in a partner? And knowing who you are more so than anything else, because when you get into a process and someone challenges who you are, by way of evaluation that feels like a low ball offer or a deal structure that doesn't seem to satisfy your interest or language around your team that doesn't resonate with you or not paying homage to the strategic decisions that you've made and the ones that you are excited about doing in the future with them as partners. If you don't know who you are, you don't really have the backbone to stand up and say no and back out or hold them to account or ask the same hard questions of them that you're asking of you, which is the thing that obviously builds the mutual respect and the muscle tissue that you need to have in order to get a deal done. So 
I think kind of falsely believing it's their moment and it may be their moment, but even if it is not doing the homework and the hard work to prepare themselves relative to telling their own story first. And that takes time and you have to stop other things and bring the team together and give your advisor the latitude to do that. Some advisors don't really care. You know, give us, let's have a couple of interviews. We'll build the material and then we'll go out. That's one way to do it. I think another way is to really kind of craft it with the team so that you as the representative of the company, you believe in it and you've stress tested it first because you're always the first port of call. If someone does something in a conversation relative to deal structure, value, whatever it is that doesn't resonate, you're going to stop it before it goes to your client. And you can only do that if you believe the story just as much as the owners and operators do. I, I 100% agree with that. And is this the moment? I mean, what part of what we see is people just waiting until they think that they have everything lined up internally to then begin to talk to anyone. And by that point, you've only got one part of the picture, which is your internal work. If, if every time we started in on an M&A project, we could roll back the clock six months and say, hey, start now beginning a dialogue with some of the players that are probably going to be the ones who, who want to acquire you. You know, you don't have to have everything completely locked in. The story is important. What we see is, is companies kind of being in their own silos and staying really isolated and being scared to engage with potential acquirers that are out there, even with kind of a light touch, because a huge part of what that means is that then when they think that they've got their growth rates up and they've hit whatever milestone they were hoping to hit, they're trying to hit the, the green light on an M&A process right then. And then they, and they, with their advisor's help, are going out and, and starting conversations for the first time with potential acquirers instead of it being a story that those acquirers, the, the people at those acquirers have been tracking for a while and a relationship that where both sides can say, hey, now's the right time for me. Is it the right time for you? You can start to think early about who are those players that are out there and who are the people that you'd want to connect with there. Building those relationships is really, is really valuable because at the end of the day, any deal is going to be a relationship. There's just so much at stake that you have to have that relational tissue to get something done. One thing I, I use a lot is that kind of Kevin Costner feel the dreams, you know, if you build it, they will come, you know, and I, I started thinking that when you first mentioned Morgan about when people think it's their moment, but then Taylor, you said sometimes people wait too long. I, I get into the same boat with more than likely younger companies, but some of them are more mature. It's just, I have to give them a little coaching of here's some things that you got to kind of get your ducks in a row in order for you to be ready for me to start, you know, telling your story, start pointing people back to your website, start asking for attention. What are some of the things that you tell folks maybe when they come to you that think it's their moment and it's not, what are the, the check marks that you're saying, Hey, go back and check this or check that. Like how, how can you help them, you know, either recognize it's not their moment and, and what do you do to help them get there? There's a network effect to all this, right? Like if you're going to go and tap your network to find an advisor so that they tap their network, my first response is have you tapped yours? Who are you talking to that you trust? What are they telling you? Do they think it's your time? 
And I think there's the, the commonality amongst what Taylor was saying and what I was saying uh, as well about falsely believing that it is their moment is, is just leveraging the relationships both within your own network and beyond to start those discussions. Just here's what I'm thinking about. This is the story of my business. Does it resonate with you? Love what you guys are doing. Seems like there's a fit. But doing that first within your own internal network, people that you close the door with and kick your feet up on the table and talk about your biggest fears, your biggest concerns, your biggest dreams with your business, whether it's you know your CFO or your internal sales team or whatever it is, who is it that you trust and what are they telling you? Because we all rely on our own personal networks to advise us on everything related to business and personal and social and, and all that. Do the same. And, and then and then start to maybe think about all the reasons why it's not your time, right? Like what would someone else look at the business from afar and what would they pick out? Do you have a response to that? Have you thought about that? Have you been self-critical? And have you asked yourself the hardest question? Some people don't like to be asked hard questions. That's, that's why our style of advisory is slightly different. You know, we come in and we expect that and it cuts exactly both ways. You know, we're going to ask hard questions and we expect you to do the exact same to us. So they bring boxes of Kleenex with them too. Yeah, exactly. No, we hopefully it doesn't go that route, but it, it has yeah. with us as well. But to be really critical of yourself in a respectful, thoughtful, generative mm -hmm. way before you go and run a process like this or think about it, because it is intimate. It, it, it is sensitive. There is a lot on the line. You're talking about people's lives. You're talking about their careers. You're talking about their financial futures, their kids, all of that. Investors, a lot of people have a fair amount of stake in the game in an effort like this. So you're doing the pre-work to one, tap your network and, and two, be really kind of honest with yourself about asking hard questions. Awesome. You got anything to add to that? No, I don't think so. If I could wave a magic wand for the perfect process, it's like six or nine months before you think you're really ready to go out and you're going to hit that milestone that you think is going to be the magic thing that, you know, when, when you want to go out to the market, you do a quick kind of inventory and assessment of, all right, well, what's, what's our story? What are the blind spots? Like Morgan was talking about, what can we do to maybe shore those up in the, in the meantime? And then what's the sort of high level list of potential acquirers that probably going to be the same one six months from now that they are today, or even two years from now. And how do you begin to, in a light way, develop those relationships so that you have a kind of network to go to when you're ready. And also you're on their radar because M&A is absolutely a, a two-way street. It has to do with whether you're ready and whether the acquirer is is ready and, and whether this fits a strategic need. And the chances that when you're ready to go, it fits exactly the moment when they're saying, hey, we want to grow in this direction. That's, you know, that's a low probability versus you saying, hey, raising your hand and saying, hey, we think we're growing well. Someday we might, you know, we might look at an exit like this, keep us in mind. And then when they start to look in growing in your area, they may call you and say, look, I know you haven't hit that milestone you were looking for, but um, we're really serious about that. And that's really where the best deals happen when there's a real strategic fit. And it's not just somebody kind of buying and selling and saying, okay, well, I 
think I could get this for good value. Bringing in your circle, whether it's your uh, conversation partners or or advisors, you know, relatively early, even if it's just with a light touch. So you have that that team helping you think about it. Yeah, I was just going to say I think that's a really great point. And just to add to it, so much of it comes down to right time, right place, as you said. And you can do one of two things to let those things play out. Just let the stars align, which is nice. If, if you're into astrology, you may want to default to that. And <laughs> that can happen or you're intentional about it and you get on someone's radar because what may not be a fit now, you have, this happens all the time. All of a sudden someone says, you know what? We just came out of a strategic retreat. That's exactly what we're looking for. And then they come back and say, hey, let's talk. And so you want to be on their radar so that if there is a strategic pivot, they did have a retreat for four days and all of a sudden they decided that social emotional learning is where they want to go, but it wasn't where they wanted to go seven months ago. You want to be on their radar as Taylor's mm -hmm. pointed out. All right. Well, you guys have thrown out some really great nuggets here. And I think the listeners have gotten a, a ton of, you know, free stuff from you. So I want to, I want to give a chance to maybe ask one last question and, and give you a chance to plug Tucker Capital before we, we go. We've talked a lot about M&A. From a Tucker Capital perspective, what what are you guys each most excited about for the the year coming up, or for the rest of this year, maybe? You know, I would say, as as guys that that care about who they're representing, we want to stand behind and alongside good people that are doing good work. I think deals that that actually are going to move the needle by way of impact, social mobility, supporting the underserved learners that are getting now more marginalized by the day. When you think about what's going on in the world, the impact of COVID is going to be significant. It's going to be generational, unfortunately, despite all the interventions and the money that we've thrown at it. There are students, English language learning students, students with social learning disabilities, et cetera, that are not getting the support they need. And they just can't you know, in a public school and in other kinds of schools, the teacher student ratios is vast. They've been learning on, on online at home with bad internet and perhaps not the parental infrastructure that others have. And so there's going to be a whole swath, perhaps even the majority uh, of students that have been left behind and didn't have the benefit of resources that other more privileged students get access to. So deals that actually are, are doing something by way of impact and you can point to it. That's the kind of stuff I want to get behind. I mean, you just couldn't ask for a more exciting time to be working in education right now. I mean, it's, it's really fun because there's so much changing. The changes that have happened in the last two years are the same changes uh, and evolutions to the market that we were all talking about for 10 years. And all of a sudden they happened. And what's on offer right now in higher ed with rethinking the value proposition that there and what it means for colleges who are thinking about how they, how they grow and pivot in the, in the new conditions. That's huge. The, the, we've done some, some exciting work with adult learners and, and credentialing K-12, everything's changing there. So it's a, it's a cool time to be a strategic advisor. And we get to look at both the strategic side of what we do where we're helping companies think about how they grow and, and tackle opportunities. And then the partnership side and M&A side, where, you know, sometimes 
that's the way to go and address that. And, and it's, it's just a fun time to be an advisor in, in, in the sector. You know, Jacob, you, you're probably in the same spot with some of your clients when they, they come to you and they're saying, all right, now's the time where we want to go out and tell our story. Do you wish that you could turn the clock back six months? What would you, what would you tell them? You know, I, th- thank you for you know flipping the tables on me here. And it's, you know, it's such a, it's a bigger question you're asking than I think, you know, maybe because people come to us for PR for different reasons. You know, oftentimes they may come to us because they are one of those folks that you're either working with or will be working with that is starting to do that work. We're starting to get our name out there attached to specific topics so that those folks that we want to know about us, to buy, or, you know, to partner with us or whatever, we'll start seeing us in those publications. So we do get a lot of those folks that come and say, Hey, we know that we need to do some certain kinds of PR in order for us to be more relevant, or even just like that whole, like cool factor. You know, we were in Forbes, we had a district and education week, but sometimes in the financial world, like those kinds of brands matter. And so if we stick to kind of the financial pieces, a lot of times folks come to us for that. And, you know, we've been doing that for years. There was a time when, you know, we were carrying a couple of startups at any given moment that that literally was the only reason they were working with us. But just because there is so much going on in the the world right now, as far as, you know, um, PR nightmares, we'll just put it that way, that there are a lot of times when, you know, current clients, former clients, companies that come to help. Of course, I wanted to dial back the clock, but you never can. And in my world, like that can of worms is open. Like, you know, you know, you're trying to, you can't jam that toothpaste back in the tube, you know, a lot of times. So for me going back on that clock, it's, it's, you know, making smarter leadership decisions so that certain things don't happen. And I'm not there with a mop and a bucket for, for you guys. But so in other places, it, it's also the goals that they're looking for that I may say, look, we've got to you know, do some work here on your website or your messaging, you know, or your focus or who do you want to be to who and for what reasons before we start putting you out there to the big dogs. You know, if we're appointing other superintendents or potential, you know, VCs or, you know, the larger companies that might be in the, the, you know, the, the, the market to buy or to, you know, whatever, you better be ready. Like you, you can't, you don't invite people over to a messy house to stick with, with Morgan's analogy. As a follow-on question, Jacob, is it really, and I, and I think I know the answer to this, but it must be really difficult to give PR advice to PR savants like Tucker Capital. I mean, right? I mean, you're kind of talking to the experts. <laughs> I'd say in, in, in 40 years of being in business, the thing that we do the worst is PR and marketing without... That and turning on my television, working in my DVR system, which my dog can do better than me. Um, <laughs> and Taylor is our de facto technology advisor at Tucker. So thank you um, for that. But it must be really difficult for you to give advice to people that kind of know the whole game before it starts. So, you know, I, I appreciate the the sarcasm, you know, in that, that, that question. Um, we run into all sorts of folks and I'm sure it's similar things with you all that, you know, in the years that I've done this, you know, I handle most of our initial conversations. I'm immediately doing a culture fit. I'm immediately determining how does this fit? Where does this fit? Are their goals realistic? Would I work with this person? Will I miss family time if I have to for this person? I mean, that's really what it comes down to for, for me sometimes is where the crisis is happening. I may have to take a phone call at dinner every once in a while. I don't do it often. But, you know, so I'm asking myself all of those questions and, 
you know, one of those usually is, are they coachable? Are they willing to learn? Are they willing to adapt or change their way of thinking? And so those all are check marks that I go through. And, you know, there are times when I'll stop a conversation. It's just, you know, before they become a client, it's just, it's not going to do us any good mm -hmm. because for one reason or another, the culture issue or that is going to get in the way. What I've found for the most part is that the people who come to us, it's less of the ego that maybe gets in the way that you were alluding to, Morgan, the savants, and more of the baggage um, from past experiences that get in the way, good, bad, or ugly, doesn't matter. They've had a horrible experience with a PR firm. They got lit up by an investigative journalist that they weren't prepared for or that they weren't expecting to happen. They very organically and easily gotten good PR, and that's kind of drying up now, and they have to actually put some effort into it. You know, there's there's a lot of different reasons that people come to us, but for the most part, I truly believe that that the majority of people in education are in it to do good. I'm one of them. And so I also look for that do-goodness that, you know, it's like, are they here, you know, to just make the buck and leave, you know, or to your point earlier, are they, are they actually here trying to move the needle? Because if they're here trying to move the needle, like I get to help them move the needle and, and maybe I'll put up with a little bit of ego if that means I can help them make a difference or, you know, help the product or their team. Well said. I don't catch them all though. I'm sure you guys have gotten into situations where, you know, a very messy dinner, chicken's undercooked, it's so bad and I can't get out of it. I mean, we're literally like handcuffed together for at least in that moment. So I can't say enough to the folks that are still with us about what you mentioned too, Morgan, is you need to be, I have to be equipped as much as you are to, to be able to, to lead my clients through that messy dinner and make sure that we find it the other way. Or for me to say, well, why don't we just head to the exit? Yeah, there's no playbook for that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's right. Just instinct at that point, <laughs> hopefully you get it right. For everyone out there, I've had the pleasure of knowing Taylor and Morgan for, it's a little over a year now, isn't it? Or right around there? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, right around there. Um, they do great work. And, you know, if you're looking for, for folks that really will dive in, they will ask the tough questions, but are looking for someone to care about your next steps in your journey that, you know, more than you do, maybe even talk to Morgan and, and Taylor, but Guys, I really appreciate you both joining us today. Couldn't have asked for more. You know, you shared a ton of nuggets of knowledge. So um, just thanks for taking the time out to, to join us here on, on Education Insider. Hey, thanks, brother. And listen, we would say the same thing about you, man. <laughs> You're good peoples and you do good work and you build a good team. So we're humbled to be a part of it. Yeah, you guys have, have been been front and center in the education market for how many, how many years? Decades. And that's cool getting to work with you guys don't work too hard out there. You know, I know ski season's almost done, but look forward to, you know, maybe picking that conversation up here in a few months with you as well. Thank you all for sticking with us for this episode of the Education Insider. I was pumped to have that conversation with um, Morgan Battle and Taylor Smith from Tucker Capital, you know, just want to give them a shout out again and a thank you, you know, stick with us here. You guys like us, comment, ask questions. We've got a few more cool episodes coming up, but we're always interested in hearing what else do you guys want to know? Who else can we talk to, to get you the answers you're looking for? So thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Education Insider, and we will see you again soon.